Hey, lucky number seven episode of Age on Square is here and coming right at you from the depths of Prairie Land, Canada. Welcome and thank you for tuning in. Whether you are returning to hear more or if this is your first one, I'm thrilled to have you listening in. So I'm your host, The Original Age. Get set to tackle more financial topics in our quest to get unsquared and more rooted with useful and empowering financial insights. I'm doing this in small doses, just 20 minutes once a week. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a car ride to the local grocery store and back. That really isn't that much, is it? So with the clock set at about 20 minutes, let's dive right in. In today's stack, I have more about debt and something a little bit about Trump. Though you're going to have to listen in if you're curious what I'm going to say about him. But just remember, this is not a political show. I have very delicate ears, remember? But first, I want to take a few minutes to uh, bring up a slowly brewing yet ongoing observation my mind is working on. It's something I started noticing a couple of years ago, uh, roughly about the time that I had left the so-called rat race. And it's something I think about from time to time. My latest mental foray happened this uh, week while listening to another podcast where the guest was a former Google employee. Whoa, whoa, hold on a sec. What did I just say? Yes, I just said former Google employee. And no, this wasn't one of those employees fired for some sort of social justice nonsense. It was a former employee that left on his own accord. Huh? Hold on, whoa, whoa, back up the train here. You're telling me that someone left Google on their own? But isn't Google supposed to be one of those dream jobs out there, especially for a computer programmer type? While this gentleman's uh, before and after stories were very interesting, I'm still stuck on and fascinated by the why. Here was yet another glowing example of what I see as a growing trend with millennials. Yes, yes, I know, millennials. They're called the generation that can't keep focus and thus can't stick to a job for very long. I get that. I'm starting to see that it's more and more true, this current example as standing proof. But has anyone bothered to ask why that happens to be a trend? Yes, I know, I'm sure that there's tons of studies out there, and no, I haven't really researched them yet. But you know what? Sometimes I like to run my own thought experiments based on what I read and hear. And I know that many of you are just dying to know what I think. So here's what I think. I think we're in the midst of a big shift in mind frame. I think more and more millennials uh, are approaching the fact that life is about more than just the money. They're thinking, what good is the money if you don't have the time to enjoy it? Is life not more about being enjoyed than stressing about making bosses happy so you can have more dollars to your name? I think more millennials are shifting to pursuing a life that is more meaningful to them than chasing dollars at jobs they have realized they don't like. That being said, I also think that we're just in the early stages of this shift. Why do I say this? Because I still see many millennials that are still stuck in the beliefs instilled in them by their parents, who themselves grew up and lived through mentality of joining one company and working up the corporate ladder at that one company for many decades, and then retiring with a nice pension. It's difficult for these millennials to break the programming of believing it's all about the paycheck and retirement. I see it regularly too. I have friends who are miserable at their job, yet they stay there. I've heard about friends having opportunities to move to other companies and with their skill sets, they'd be slam dunks to get jobs at these companies. Yet they stay in their rut. I suppose they must be holding back, 
maybe because of the comforting grip of certainty. Besides, doesn't the saying go, misery loves company? But think about it. If these millennials aren't willing to jump into another corporate job to try and break their unhappy ways, what hope do they have of realizing and acting on the fact that it's their actual working lifestyle that has them so down and almost out, not their current employer? That jump makes it that much more wider and more unlikely. That's why I think we're still in the early stages of this seismic shift. So what am I trying to say here? I think disappearing are the days of the whole go to school, then you work for the same man for many decades, and then you go and retire. Yes, many have labeled millennials as selfish. I think this is an incorrect label, but that's not the point of discussion here. The fact is that they're seeing more and more of their parent generation retire unhappy and are realizing that they don't want to be like that. Besides, it's what helped push me to change, though my father didn't even get to see retirement. And check out episode zero if you want to learn more about that. Bottom line is I don't think we should try to stop this trend. I think this trend will help ease the collective psyche and make our society even happier. I think it will generate a tendency of more self-dependency, which in turn will ease burdens on society. I'm not saying we're turning into hermits. I just think we're slowly starting to appreciate more of the rewards of doing things for ourselves and our immediate community. Rather than working in some massive corporate or government blob, never really being in direct contact with the final user of the services, just being another cog in the machine. Or as Pink Floyd sang, just another brick in the wall. So I challenge you to think about this the next time you're stuck in bumper-to-bumper traffic. Perhaps traffic, and maybe hence pollution, would diminish if not everyone was racing to a job that they despise at 8am and then racing home to relax for a few hours around 5pm only to repeat the whole process the next day. Oh, and let's not forget the millions of people doing the exact same thing day in and day out, hence causing all the traffic jams and the ensuing pollution. And then perhaps there'd be more happy people. Less rat race stress for more people can only ease the collective mindset, no? And yes, I understand that there exist jobs such as doctors and nurses and teachers that can't just up and leave and start their own business in their respective fields. I'm not expecting that to happen, at least not without a much, much larger societal shift. I know that I'm not pushing these professions to just give up. Many of those in these professions do extremely noble and thankless work, and I appreciate them for what they do. My discussion is more geared towards the witnessing of a return to small businesses operated by individuals or small groups of people that are more interested in making a difference in their community while also making an enjoyable living, rather than being a stooge for a paycheck at a mega corporation. But again, these are just my own little thoughts experiments that I wanted to share with you. Nothing more. But anyways, enough about my thought experimenting. Now let's take another run at the immensely interesting topic of, drumroll please, government debt. Particularly in the U.S. because, as I've mentioned before, the U.S. is still the largest economic power in the world, whether you like it or not. So as their economy goes, so goes the global economy, generally speaking. Um, Back in uh, episode 2, I took you on a ride through some budget numbers and the insanity of the U.S. government situation, and it truly is insane if you ask me. I bring up government debt because I believe it has a direct implication on long-term investment strategies. If the day arrives that the government goes bust, especially in the US, the economy will collapse thanks to the way the government has intertwined itself smack dab in the middle of the economy, which means that the investment markets too will get obliterated. True, at such an instant in history, 
no one will really care about the investment markets as there will be much bigger problems to deal with. But that's exactly my point too. Thanks to these ridiculous debts, one generation, sooner or later, will be saddled with problems of such immense magnitude that many of us prefer to ignore it rather than deal with it right now. We just keep kicking the can down the road. No corporation could ever exist this way, and they produce products and services to sell. So why would it be any different for governments? I bring this up because I read an article in Zero Hedge this week, which I'll link to on our site, although I did retweet it on Twitter, titled, Who Really Built America's Massive Pyramid of Debt? According to the article, the U.S. national debt currently stands at over $21 trillion, that's T as in Tom trillion dollars. So let's take a look at how it got there. Starting at the very beginning, from the very first dollar of debt taken on by the newfound republic in 1789, until Ronald Reagan took office in 1981, the debt accumulated to $750 billion, that's B as in Bob, billion dollars. So that's a span of 192 years. If we use a, only a straight average for that time period, that's just over $3.9 billion each year. And no, I'm not accounting for inflation here, so don't email me about that. I do know about it. It's not the point here, though. Now, turning back to Ronald Reagan. In his eight years in office alone, his administration added $1.86 trillion. In other words, they increased the national debt by almost 2.5 times. If you think about it in a different way, it took them just over three years to accumulate that $750 billion in debt that took 192 years before to accumulate. And this was a Republican administration, which was supposed to be fiscally conservative, meaning they're supposed to be saving more money than spending. <laughs> yeah, right. But don't worry, Democrats wouldn't be outspent. We'll get to that in a few minutes. As I've mentioned before, this is not a political show, so I'm not taking sides here. I'm just pointing out the absurdity arising for both sides. But think about that. It's like Reagan went to the bank each year and said, okay, so listen, guys, I'm going to need to borrow $232.5 billion this year. Oh, I have absolutely no plans to repay it anytime soon. After those eight years were done, then came along George Bush Sr., who took the reins and in four quick years added $1.55 trillion. So he spent more in four years than his predecessor Reagan did in eight years. So his visits to the bank would have sounded more like, Okay, guys, you're going to lend me $387.5 billion this year with no repayment term. And that would be repeated four times. Okay, well, after 12 years, the American public just got sick of this and brought in a Democrat to clean up the mess. Over eight years, Bill Clinton showed a little bit more restraint, and I'm trying to say that without laughing too much here, as he added $1.4 trillion to the national debt. Yes, that was less than his predecessors, but before you Democrats start singing his praises, just remember again that the total debt after 192 years was $750 billion. I'm sure that Bill's visit to the bank was a bit more reserved. He shuffled in with his hands in his pockets and he had this little shy little look in his, in his eyes and, and he and he's, you know, meekly just said, you know, uh, guys, I'm going to need $175 billion this year. I figured I wouldn't be too greedy about it. Well, then his flirtatious ways didn't help his conservative Democrats, so to speak. Instead, America turned again back to the Republicans and landed with George Bush Jr. and his war on terror. George Jr. was much more bold than his predecessor. He took those hands out of his pockets, 
He straightened up his back and he walked into the bank and he said, okay, this year you guys are going to lend me $731 billion and you're going to do it eight years in a row for me and there will be no repayment terms. And then when everything was said and done after eight years, he added $5.85 trillion to the debt when he was done. $5.85 trillion. Of course, this would outrage anyone. So the American public said, okay, enough is enough. And they sent Barack Obama to the White House. Surely a return to a Democrat would have more restraint on the administration. So Mr. Obama, he walked in to the White House and said, Hey George, get out, step aside. I'll show you how this is done. And then he proceeded to the nearest bank and said, Okay guys, there's a new sheriff in town. We're going to do things much more different now. George had no decency to do the right thing. So you know what you're going to do for me? You're going to give me $1.074 trillion not billion, but trillion, 1.074 trillion each year. You know, we have to account for inflation and all. And like I just said, I have to correct all the errors that George made. So after eight years of Barack Obama, the American public saw another 8.59 trillion tacked to their debt. Okay, enough is enough. The American public has just about had it by now, right? So it's time to make America great again. Sounds like this Donald Trump character is the man for the job because he's managed tons of debt in his business ventures, so he surely will right this debt ship. Besides, he has this awesome plan to cut taxes too, and who doesn't love his thumbs up that he gives all the time? How great is this? Except, current estimates put his four years in office as adding $4.78 trillion in just four quick years. And if that turns out to be a correct estimate, that will push the national debt to around $24 trillion, that's T and Tom trillion dollars by 2021. Okay, so let's quickly consider this. Let's just uh, humor me for a minute. Say I wasn't talking about American presidents here and the American Republic. Let's say we we're instead covering the debt antics of a mega corporation. Let's pick on someone like maybe Apple or Google. How long do you think a CEO would last if he was running up debt numbers like this? Would you invest in a company if you knew all about that debt? Would you expect a company that was running up such a debt bill over the decades to last? If not, why is it expected that a government should be any different? Now, I'm not suggesting this is going to have an impact on investment markets tomorrow or next week or next year. I don't know if and when it will. But isn't it worth keeping in mind? In my view, this is a very important matter to consider not just for investment purposes, but for general well-being too. Speaking of debt, do you know who can help you get your debt situation specifically and financial picture generally in, in great order? Engage Financial, that's who. Engage Financial provides financial services and advice based on a foundation of coaching, advocacy, planning, and education, not products. Whether you're in search of a brief financial consultation specific to something like your debt, or maybe a more involved financial plan and concierge service, Engage Financial has something to fit your financial expertise needs. So check us out at www.engagefinancial.ca and you might just see a mugshot of me there too, the original age. And if you're in the Edmonton area, drop us a line, let's meet up for coffee. We love to meet new people and discuss future aspirations. And worry not, that first coffee and conversation, it's all on us. As they say, no purchase necessary, so don't delay. Your financial future beckons. Give us an old-fashioned ring or a new-age instant message. Whatever fits your communication fancy best.
Okay, so now my discussion on debt may be over, but let's not move away from El Presidente Trampo just yet. In Thursday's email from Barron's, I read the following passage, quote, Stocks have put together their best three-day stretch since 2016. Thank, in part, the latest presidential tweet. At 10.08 a.m., the Dow Jones Industrial Average was in negative territory. At 10.09 a.m., President Donald Trump tweeted, Just had a long and very good conversation with President Xi Jinping of China. We talked about many subjects with a heavy emphasis on trade. End quote. And then the Barron's piece continues with, Quote, stocks jumped on the possibility that the trade war with China might have a peaceful ending. The Dow also ended the day up 1.1%. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. The market was moving downward for the day, yet with one quick tweet from Mr. President, it reversed course the next minute and ended the day up, without even any solid proof that such a phone call had even taken place. With a wave of the Twitter wand, Trump made magic. I'm not bringing this up because I'm for or against him using Twitter to communicate with the masses. I'm all for transparency. I'm bringing it up merely to point out how fickle the markets can be. It used to be that actual proof of a conversation or meeting had to exist before anyone would act on the results. Now the masses are moved by simple tweets. Do you think that makes us twits? Okay, all joking aside, this actually reminds me of a Simpsons episode. Yes, I come from the Simpsons generation. The episode was with the teacher's strike. You had Principal Skinner and Mrs. Crabapple, who were arguing at the PTA meeting, posing their positions of raising taxes versus more spending. It shows the back-and-forth so-called feelings of the PTA, and shows how quickly opinions can be swayed when dealing with the masses. I'll post the clip on our social media feeds if you want to take a look at what I'm referring to, and just in case you're not up to date on the Simpsons mania. It also goes to show what a wizard Trump is with his knowledge of how to gain attention and sway opinion. Love him or hate him, I think that is why he's in the Oval Office. It may have been Russian intervention, and I'm not here to debate that either way, because again, not a political show. But my opinion is that it's his mastery of the arts of influence. Think about it. He ran for president in 2012, and barely eked out 1% of Republican support before he dropped out of the primaries. Then in 2016, and just four short years later, he's front and center at almost every debate. So I think you can thank the Republican establishment, who gave him all the attention, which is all he needed to make his so-called Make America Great Again point to sway just enough people to vote him in as the Republican candidate first, and then as president later. Had the other candidates on the primary stage ignored him, I don't think he'd be president right now. But back to my point here. It just goes back to showing us that unless you are trading positions on a very regular basis, this is merely noise in the market that distracts from the other more important factors at play. That could be pointing in a stronger or weaker direction. For all we know, Mr. Trump could have just returned from a five-minute so-called uh, relief break, if I may say, when he decided that tweet would be beneficial for the markets. Think about it. He said so many off-the-cuff things so many times before. Why would this be any different? So keep this in mind next time, in case his tweet says instead that he had a very bad conversation with President uh, Xi Jinping of China. In that situation, don't panic sell your portfolio just because the crowd's doing it. Besides, you're an investor, right? And if you need a refresher, listen to episode 4 if you needed some clarification on that. And besides, you believe in your investment positions, so this noise should have no effect on you, 
right? This actually brings me to bring up a book that I'm slowly reading and percolating on right now. It's called uh, Influence by Robert Cialdini. It's actually been highly recommended by many uh, people in the field of business. Uh, there's actually a chapter about social proof, which I think fits this narrative perfectly, since it discusses how our thinking and actions are influenced by what other people think and do. Cialdini points to two factors that play a central role in why central proof works, uncertainty and similarity. He actually has one example where he points to a very strange episode that occurred at a Singapore bank uh, back in the late uh, 1980s. Here's an excerpt from his book about this event. So, quote, For no good reason, customers of a local bank began drawing out their money in a frenzy. The run on this respected bank remained a mystery until much later when researchers interviewing participants discovered its peculiar cause. An unexpected bus strike had created an abnormally large crowd waiting at the bus stop in front of the bank that day. Mistaking the gathering for a crush of customers poised to withdraw their funds from a failing bank, passers-by panicked and got in line to withdraw their deposits, which led more passers-by to do the exact same thing. Soon after opening its doors, the bank was forced to close to prevent a complete crash. So by the way, a run on a bank is simply a situation where a massive number of people withdraw their money from a bank, causing it to run out of cash reserves and thus forcing it to close. This makes people panic because they believe their money has disappeared and no longer is accessible. Bank runs are very real and at times very threatening to a comfortable way of life. As this example shows, in many situations, things simply happen and snowball only because, as the saying goes, everyone else was doing it. There was no other fundamental reason for the bank run to occur, which, with relation to today's example, leads us to suggest that there was no fundamental reason to act on President Trump's tweet. He knows that, of course, but he also knows, like all previous presidents, the strength of the leash he possesses in his hand. So again, relating that to an investment portfolio, and thus a future of financial independence, it is becoming more and more critical to learn to separate the true fundamentals from the noise. But don't expect most of your financial and investment advisors to do that, because they're trained to convince you there is no bad true fundamentals out there, and to just always stay invested in the markets no matter what. Besides, it's in their best interest. I mean, oh, it's, um, <clears throat> it's in your best interest. Huh? So be careful who you give reins to your financial portfolio. And with that comes the end of another episode of Age Unsquared. We got to lucky number seven, so here's to many more to come in the future. And if you're hungry for even more unsquareness, be sure to follow me on Twitter and Facebook at The Original Age or check out our site at www.agecorp.co. And please help me spread the word by sharing this podcast with just three of your friends and family. It's the whole pay it forward effect to help us grow this financial revolution. Don't be shy. Always be sharing, my friends. Please don't hoard this podcast all to yourself. And with growing success, I know that one day I will have the honor of sitting at your kitchen table to work with you on your financial matters as a member of our extended financial family. Until next time, stay safe. Keep your integrity and see you at the pinnacle.